Hey, good morning, folks. Good to be with you all. Welcome to church. Hi, Marie at the back. Hi, you guys. Hi, everyone. Spread around the place. It's quite, quite spread out here. Looking forward to the new building. It's a little bit more enclosed. Uh, it's, it's going to be great. Brian is doing an amazing job. You see Brian at the back there. He's, uh, he's cracking on with that building. And uh, the, the opening, we've, we've got a, 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 a target for opening the weekend, the Sunday before the Kids Holiday Club. Okay, so it won't be in here Sunday before the Kids Holiday Club. We'll be in there. And uh, so it's going to be very exciting. Uh, let's pray. Father, thank you that we're in your presence. Thank you for your love for everyone in this room. Thank you, God, for your love for everyone in this area of city. God, I believe that just like the prophets prophesied that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord, your people, the church, is going to become chief of the mountains and the nations will stream to it. And my prayer, God, is that this, like you said in your word, that the nations will stream to this church, that God, that this church will be, by the grace of God, a, a thriving and growing community of believers that impacts this area, alongside the other great churches in this area. God, we love you and we honor you. Thank you you're among us. Thank you with us. Help me to speak. Help us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, we are in John's gospel. Uh, it's, it's the fourth gospel uh, in the New Testament, and it's all about Jesus. And we've, we've, this is now week five in our series. If you've missed anything, go back and listen to what you've missed. And we've called the series Jesus Is, because the series is all about looking at who Jesus is. <clears throat> and we're now in John chapter 2. I say, say chapter 2. Now, chapter 1 was all about Jesus is God. Okay, I mean, that, that was what we, that's how John introduced us to Jesus. And I mean, the thing is, John starts with his conclusion. That's not where he started. It took him a while to figure that one out. But he didn't want to, he didn't want to keep us in suspense. He, from the word go, says, Pata! Jesus is God. So he says things like this in John chapter 1. John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Wow, Jesus was the Word, and He's God. And he says in verse 3, through Him, Jesus, all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. Verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not recognize Him. So God became a man, and the world, He created the world, and yet the world didn't even recognize that this was their creator. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. God became a man. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who, himself, who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made Him known. So that was John chapter 1. John revealed to us loud and clear, shockingly, that this man who walked the earth 2,000 years ago wasn't just a guru, wasn't just another prophet, wasn't just a good man or a miracle worker, but he was none other than God in the flesh, John chapter 1. So now, what do you expect John chapter 2 is going to be like? All right, so, wow, what's coming next? So, you imagine, imagine the first ever miracle Jesus performed. In fact, let's, let's ask it another way. Imagine you were God's PR consultant, okay? You were, you were in charge of God's marketing strategy for revealing himself to the world, right? So God has now become a man. How will he reveal himself to the world? How about a resurrection or opening of blind eyes or make a cripple walk? Jesus, that would be a great one. What does Jesus do? 
he goes to a party and makes copious amount of wine for a three-day party. Whoa! <laughs> we didn't see that one coming. Wow, we didn't see that one coming. But that's where he goes. That's incredible. John chapter 1, Jesus is God. John chapter 2, God goes to a party. That's amazing. So that's where we are today. And this is the amazing thing about the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is so simple that, that the kids at kids' church could read it and get it. And they think, wow, Jesus is God. They can read it. It's so simple that a kid would get it, and yet it's so deep. It's so deep that theologians and academics can't plumb the depths of the richness of the stuff that John's talking about in here. It is so rich and so absolutely incredible. So this is the thing about the verses we're going to be looking at today. There is two levels to this story. Say two levels. Okay, there's the surface level, and it's awesome. We're going to read about a miracle about Jesus turning the water into wine, and it's an awesome, awesome, true historic account. But there's another level. We're going to, you're going to go like a submarine under the surface, and we're going to see things you never imagined were there. And it's, and it's all about, and God deliberately did that. He calls it a sign. He wanted to show us something, and that's what we're going to see today. So we'll start with the surface. Let's read the verses. Uh, let's start verse, John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? (laughs) Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. Wow. That's kind of, wow, that's quite cool and a bit awkward and kind of, wow. But why did he say, my hour has not yet come, okay? Well, I think he was, we'll, we'll come back to it in more detail in a minute, but just, just for this point, let me just say that he had a bigger agenda, okay? He had a bigger agenda, and this isn't part of his bigger agenda, fixing the wine problem. It wasn't a matter of life and death. They didn't need more wine. I mean, they could have lived without it, right? Was, was wine, a, a, oh, I need this? No, they didn't need it. It wasn't an essential. And, and, and the thing is this, I think God is interested in doing things for you that are not just essential things, but are sometimes coincidental things. The God I believe in is a God who doesn't just provides your needs. But He's a God who provides the coincidentals in life. That's the God I believe in. Now, you might believe in an austere God who He only provides my needs. The unfortunate thing is the Bible, or the fortunate thing is the Bible, reveals a God who doesn't just provide the, the essentials, but He also provides the coincidentals in life. And you see it right through the Bible, right through the Bible. Elisha has a school of prophets in the Old Testament. You see it in 2 Kings chapter 6. And one of the prophets lost their axe heads, okay? It's not exactly the big agenda of God on planet earth. And yet God did a miracle made the axe head float. Seriously? That wasn't a need, right? Just go to the axe head shop and buy another one. And yet God did a coincidental. 
Let me, I mean, I've, I've seen it in my life. Maybe you've got stories. Here's one of my stories. I trained as an architect. I worked as an architect for five years when we started this church. That was the first five years of this church. I was working full-time in an office in the city. And I remember one day in the architect's office, I was working, I think it was on an art gallery job I was working on. I was the project architect for, and I was looking through a product catalog. I was specifying, I think it was tiles for a particular job. I was choosing the tiles. And as I was flipping through this product catalog, it had a picture of this company's uh, foyer, and it had cool chairs in the foyer. And I, I just, honestly, I didn't even pray a prayer. I just remember thinking, oh, they're really cool chairs. And in my head, I thought, I'd love chairs like that. that that's all I thought. I w- closed the book, did my stuff, finished my day's work, walked home that evening, uh, and I, I, took, I lived at Haymarket, and my office was in the new town, so I took a kind of diagonal route through all the little back lanes because I found it more interesting. And as I walked down the back lane behind where Habitat used to be and where Charlie Muller's hairdressers used to be, there in the, the lane was five of the exact same chairs I'd just seen in that product catalog. I thought, no way. And I realized that Charlie Muller, who were kind of top-end hairdressers, were getting rid of them. So I went and knocked on Charlie Muller's door and said, what's happening to those chairs? I said, oh, you can have them if you want. So, so honestly, I managed, I managed to carry all five of them. I carried all five of them home that evening. <laughs> and, I, and then I went back the next day just to double check. Are they exactly the same? And they were identical. And they, and they were designed, this, this Italian designer called Matteo Grazzi, and this, this, these are famous, iconic Italian designer, modernist chairs. I think, wow, I didn't need that, right? It's not like I didn't need that. That wasn't a, an essential need for my life. I, that wasn't a life or death moment for me, but that was God. And I told my boss about it, I told my office, I told everyone about it. They said, no way, you got those chairs? I said, I did. And I saw it in the catalog, and I just thought, I'd like that. And then it, I got five of them. It's crazy. It's crazy. I rem- Let me tell you another story. Again, in the architect's office, once a year, we'd take a day trip. And, and it was a fun thing to do. And one year, the ar- we just, right, we'll, we'll, as an office, we'll go to the Isle of Butte. So we went to the Isle of Butte, and we hired bicycles. And there was three options. There was the easy route, and that was the route round the Isle of Butte, like that on the roads. There was the medium route, which was a little bit of off-roading. And then there was the crazy route, which really wasn't a route. It was just figure out a way right through the center of the islands, and we had no idea whether there was a track or not. Guess which one I went on, right? So I went on the crazy route with some other guys, and we went on these mountain bikes, and we were totally off-terrain. And it wasn't even mountain bike tracks. There was parts where it was just... We were going through peat bogs and moss. <laughs> it was crazy. Anyway, in the middle of nowhere, in the absolute middle of nowhere, there was about five of us on this trek. One of the company directors, his chain, one, the link popped out the chain, and the chain came off, ching, like this, in the middle of nowhere. And he was thinking, how on earth am I going to fix this in the middle of nowhere? And we're all stand, we all got off our bikes and stood there and watched him trying to... And I looked down, and there in the grass in the middle of this peat bog, in the middle of the Isle of Butte, I reached down, and there in this grass were a pair of cast iron pliers with pincer tips. The ki- I'm serious, the kind that you would want if your pin popped out of your chain and you want to put the, like, just push that pin back in? Not kidding. Absolutely. So I picked it up and I said, praise the Lord! That's what I said. And it freaked him out. It absolutely, he must have thought I'd been carrying it with me or something. It absolutely freaked him out. He, he owns a yacht, and to this day, he said he got those old rusty flyers, and he's painted them up, and he keeps them on his yacht. To this day, he's got them still on his yacht. And that wasn't an essential. 
That was a coincidental. That was an iron head floating. That was a water into wine. But I, my, my belief in God, my understanding of God, is that He is not just a God who meets your essentials when you're in desperate needs. He is a God who delights in blessing us at times with the coincidentals in life, not just the essentials in life. Give me an amen, amen. if you agree with that. And maybe you haven't run out of wine. Maybe that's not your issue. Maybe for some of you it is, okay? But, but maybe for some of you, your issue is and you've run out of wine. Maybe it's your contract's about to run out. Maybe it's, you know, your marriage has gone dry. Maybe your health is running on a low ebb. Maybe your bank account's running real low. Maybe it's a variety of things, but the great news is this. Your God is interested in these things. So what are you settling for? What was interesting is here, Mary, Mary, Jesus' mother, could have simply said, shame, there's no more wine, we'll just live with it. She could have said that. What was it in her that made her not want to live with that? You know, she, she might have said, well, you can't put God to the test. I'm not going to ask for such a thing. She could have decided that and gone down that route. Why did Mary not go down that route? Some people believe it's wrong or even arrogant to ask God's and expect God's to step in to things that are non-essential things in life. But listen to what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Without faith, in fact, you can read it with me. Ready? One, two, three. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. You see, it talks about faith, and it says that those who come to God must believe that, number one, He is, and number two, that He is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek Him. I believe the faith that pleases God isn't just a faith that says, I believe you're out there, and believe certain facts about God. I believe the faith that pleases God is a faith that has an expectation that this God is a good God, and that He is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek Him. There's a story, and, and you know what? Most Scottish Christians, most Scottish Christians stop at, He's the God who is. But I believe Mary wasn't Scottish. In fact, I'm very sure of that. Mary had an expectation that she could ask God for more than just meeting needs but also the coincidentals in life. Apparently, Alexander the Great was, uh, had a, a, a general in his army who he loved. And the general in his army who he loved came to him one day, and he told Alexander the Great that his daughter was getting married and that the wedding was going to be incredibly expensive. And he asked Alexander the Great, would it be possible that you help me with my daughter's wedding? Alexander the Great, because he loved this man, because he, they had mutual appreciation, he said, of course I will. Just tell the treasurer how much it is, and I will make sure it is all covered. And so he went off and spoke to the treasurer. When he told the treasurer how much he was asking for, the treasurer was taken aback. And he went to Alexander the Great and said, do you know how much he's asking for? And Alexander the Great said, well, tell me how much. And he said the amount, and it was an astronomical amount. And Alexander the Great said, that's fine, give it to him. And the treasurer said, why on earth would you give him such a big amount? And he said this, don't, don't you see that that's a compliment? He not only understands, that general has paid me a compliment because he not only understands that I am rich, but that I am also generous. 
And for many people, you believe in a God who has all resources at his disposal. You believe in a God who is able to do anything, but you fail to believe in a God who is generous. And this general paid a compliment to Alexander the Great by not only believing that he was rich, but that also he was generous. I tell you, I really believe this. I'm not talking about consumerism here. I'm just talking about a proper understanding of God's, that Mary's understanding of Jesus was such that she, there was, she was able to, with a clear conscience, ask him for something that wasn't an essential, but she understood that he wasn't just able, but he was also willing. She was so expectant. She knew that Jesus was able. She knew that God was able. Right back at the beginning, imagine, look at how she, he was born, okay? In Luke chapter 1, verses 37, the angel said to Mary, as she conceived miraculously Jesus, he said, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary knew God was able. Mary knew God could do anything. She understood that firsthand. But she had come to the conviction that he was willing. And how had she come to this conviction? Here's how. Because for 30 years, she had pondered who Jesus was. For 30 long years, up until this point of this miracle, she'd been meditating on, who's this kid? Right? Some of you are thinking that about your kids, okay? Mary was thinking, who's this kid? Who's this kid? And a couple of verses, Luke chapter 2, verse 19, after the shepherds came, you know, the angels appeared to the shepherds, told them the child's been born, and they came and they, there was Mary and just giving birth to this child in the stable. And this is what it says, Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. She was thinking, who's this child? And then a little bit later on when Jesus was age 12, and, and remember the story where he, he interacted with the religious Jews in the, in, the, in the temple in Jerusalem, and it says in Luke chapter 2 verse 51, <clears throat> his mother treasured, say treasured, all these things in her heart. Mary was storing up in her soul a picture of God. She was, ta- she was meditating, say meditating, and she was treasuring, that, and they're, they're kind of linked, and she was pondering, who's this Jesus? And on the back of 30 years of meditating and pondering on who's this Jesus, she came to the conclusion that she could ask Jesus in a wedding when there was no more wine, I could ask him for that. That's, what she, that's the conclusion she came to. She came to that conclusion that he was a God who was not only able to meet the essentials in life, but also the coincidentals. And that's amazing. Jesus put it this way. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and your body more than clothes? Look at the birds in the air. They neither sow nor reap nor store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers in the field grow? They do not labor or spin, and yet even Solomon in all his splendor was not dressed like one of these. If this is how God so clothes the grass of the fields, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? God gives birds worms. He does. And he also gives wine at weddings. That's our God. And Jesus rebuked the disciples here and says, O you of little faith, 
Do you notice that? He never rebukes his disciples, never once rebuked anyone for asking too much, never once. People asked big things from him. People came to him with resurrection requests. People came to him with huge requests. And yet he never once rebuked anyone for asking too much, but he frequently rebuked people for expecting and asking too little because they failed to understand and comprehend the God that they were coming to. And Mary hadn't had this issue. She came understanding, believing. And listen, maybe it's how you were raised. Maybe you were raised by your parents, you know, don't expect too much and you'll not be disappointed. You know, we had to fight for it. You have to fight for it too. But look how grumpy you are, okay? So there's lots of downsides to that, okay? And, you know, or maybe it's your spouse. Maybe through your spouse you think, you know, just learn just not to expect too much and you won't be disappointed. Or maybe it's in life. Maybe life's taught you that lesson. Learn not to expect too much and you won't be disappointed. Well, I've got good news for you. God is not your wife. God is not your life. God is not your father or your stingy mother. God is God. And this is true. You can expect an entirely different interaction with this God. He is entirely different. He is a God who's interested in giving worms to birds and providing wine at celebrations. That's the God we serve. So Mary pondered Jesus. 30 years of pondering Jesus, she came to the conclusion that she could ask for wine at a wedding. How do you ponder Jesus? Well, get your Bibles out and read it every day. Read it like it's a letter from God. Understand it. Meditate on who Jesus is and understand that you're not reading about a fictional character, but the very God of the universe. And God hasn't changed, and you can still expect Him to be God. Furthermore, how can you know this Jesus? How can you ponder Jesus in your heart? Well, the Bible says that if you're a believer, He takes up residence in your soul by His Spirit, and you can know His very presence. And as you're sensitive to His leading, you'll come to become aware of, this is who my God is. This is how He is. This is who He is. And, you know, we have an even greater foundation than even Mary had, than even Mary who had that close relationship with Jesus. She had an expectation of Jesus, but we have an even greater foundation for our expectation. We have the cross. Romans chapter 8 says this in verse 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not with them also freely give us all things? Isn't that great? If he wasn't holding back Jesus, why do you think he'd be holding back in other areas? If he did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, will he not with them also give us all things? That's our God's. And I have to tell you, I'm sharing things. This is, this is how I live. I have a confidence. I walk with a confidence in the goodness of God towards me. I do. I, I'm surprised if he's not good towards me. I, I live with a, um, in fact, there's a song. I anticipate the inevitable intervention of God in my life. I expect a miracle. I, I do. I live every day. I expect the goodness of God towards me. I live with a confidence in the goodness of God. And you can live with a great confidence in the goodness of God towards you based on Jesus Christ. If he did not spare his own son, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? Say amen.
Miracles happen in an atmosphere of expectation. They don't happen in an atmosphere where there's no expectation. Jesus turns up in his hometown, Matthew chapter 13, verse 58, and it says, he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. God does not respond to needs. God does not respond to desperation. God does not respond to your pleadings. God responds to faith. That's how you're saved, and that's not just how you're saved, but that's how He continues to interact with you throughout the rest of your life. The just shall live by faith. And the next statement that Mary makes is so important. So she, she said this interaction with Jesus. Jesus says, no more wine. Jesus says, woman, what is this going to have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And apparently she wasn't put off. Okay, this is how clear she was in her expectation. You know, it didn't sound like he's going to do something here, okay? But she knew him. She just knew him. So, so even, even the seeming, seeming statement that indicate uh, he might not do something here if you didn't know him, but Jesus, Mary knew him. And, and this is what I know that she had an expectation because listen to the next thing she says. She says, verse 5, his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you to do. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, do whatever he tells you to do. Turn to your other neighbor, tell them, do whatever he tells you to do. You guys have heard that twice now. This week, um, on Monday's my day off, um, and um, Angie also has her day off. My wife's a teacher. She teaches on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. So we have Monday off together, and it's really cool. And on Monday, uh, we, went, we were out in town. We just somebody go for a coffee or do some shopping. And uh, we passed a homeless guy, and we, we said to the guy, would you like, uh, could we get you, because we're beside Greg's, could we get you a sandwich or a drink? I said, oh, I'd love a cup of tea. Thank you very much. So I, we went and got him a cup of tea in Greg's, and we gave it to him. And then we always have an opportunity then just to tell him something simple about Jesus. And we say, there's your cup of tea. And by the way, Jesus Christ loves you so much. And then he says, Maria is amazing. And then he rolled up his sleeve and he showed this tattoo of Mary. And he said, Mary, she answers all my needs and all my prayers. And I'm thinking, mate, you're... Okay, listen, no, seriously, right? Because here's Mary. Now, good Catholics here, listen to me. Good Catholics, listen to me. Good Catholics, you need to do what Mary said. And what did Mary say? Mary says, turn to your neighbor, do whatever he tells you. Okay, do whatever he tells you, not me. Jesus, your expectation is not in Mary. Mary's expectation was in Jesus. Good Catholics, learn that lesson. Mary's expectation was Jesus, not in herself. And so here we see this situation. She turns and says, do whatever he tells you. And, and what he told him to do did not seem logical. And sometimes in the way to you seeing a miracle, when you say, okay, what, what are you telling me to do here, Lord, in this situation? It might not seem logical. It might not. It might be the door he tells you to push. You think, oh, are you sure I should push that door? Are you sure I should make that phone call? You know, I remember when we'd just taken the step of faith, I'd gone full-time in the ministry, left architecture, and we, we took a step of faith. We moved the church from Tollcross Primary School, right in the city center, to Leith. In 2003, we took that step. Why did we do that? I mean, that's irrational. No one was even coming from Leith to our church, right? Pete was there at the time, remember that? That's how desperate we were. Okay, so <laughs> God, God, told us to, God told us to move the church to Leith. God told us to do that. We did what Jesus told us to do. 
And it worked. Do whatever he tells you to do. Just, Jesus said, just, Mary said, just do whatever he tells you to do. And that's what you need to do. Just whatever he tells you to do. Live with his expectation. I expect. And then just do whatever he tells you to do. And you see this in, throughout the Bible as well. You see Naaman, the, 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 the general, the Assyrian general in the Old Testament. He had leprosy in 2 Kings chapter 5. And, and he was told, go and dip in the Jordan seven times. What? The way! Maybe didn't do amenities, but it was a miracle. It didn't seem logical, but just do whatever he tells you to do. And that's when miracles happen. In in 1940s in California, there was uh, an air cadet, and he and he was flying. It was uh, it was an army air cadet. He was learning to fly, and he was only a young guy, 23 years old. And he took off that day, and he took the plane up to a uh, thousand meters. And as he was up there, he suddenly was hit by this strange condition. He was temporarily blinded. And he, he went into panic. It was a solo flight. He went into panic. He was totally blind. And he was flying for a thousand, thousand meters. And so he gets on the radio to the, the person at the uh, control tower. And it was this particular Colonel uh, Taxton. And in the control tower, Colonel Taxton said to him, follow my instructions exactly. And so he got, he got him to circle for, for, for a good long time. And while he was circling, he was clearing the airfield. Everyone out of the way. He was getting some ambulances in just in case things went wrong. <clears throat> and he kept him circling. Then he said, okay, now this is what I want you to do. Now, lose altitudes. Bank sharply. You're coming into the airfield now. Lower the wheels. Gently now. Ever so gently. One more meter. Now, and he brought the plane down to a safe landing, and the guy was blind. And he just did exactly what the colonel told him to do. And I believe there are times when you will not have the right perspective in life. You're going to be in it. You won't be able to see it. But he can see all things. And he is the God that you can have an expectation of that is interested in providing worms for birds and wine in weddings. And you owe, owe us of little faith. You can ask him for things in the middle of those situations, and you can do whatever he tells you to do because he has a perspective and an understanding that you and I do not have. And as you follow that, you will find great answers coming. Okay, it says in verse 6, nearby there stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. It's a lot. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who drew the water knew. Okay, six purification jars. What was that? Okay, this is what the Jews did. The Jews were very ceremonial. They used, they purified everything. In their desire to be pure before God, they washed their hands. In fact, between every course, they washed their hands. They held their hands up and they washed it properly. In a, in a, in a Jewish way, they, this is what they did. And they came in off the, off the, out of a busy day in their sandals or flip-flops, and they washed their feet using these same jars. These same jars. Okay? I, I love how it says, the master of ceremonies, he did not realize where it came from. 
Lucky that. <laughs> you see, he did not realize where it came from, though the servants who drove the water knew. <laughs> That's not. <they'd> be like, <laughs> imagine that? I love it. It's quite funny, isn't it? He did not realize where it came from. If he had realized, anyone been in, in the guile, the shopping mall, the guile? And do you remember it was quite trendy for a while having those big tanks of water with fish in it? And people paid money to have fish eat their feet. I mean, that's a good money maker, right? There's someone came up with a crazy idea that, I know, I will get to put feet in water and get fish to eat their, that will make money off that. Imagine that. I mean, if you were a fish, would you eat your feet? Seriously? <laughs> so imagine then taking a cup of that water, right? Imagine everyone from the guile, verrucas, uh, kind of fungal toenails, the whole deal, little bits between everything in there, right? And then taking a cup of water and saying, bless you, <laughs> you know? A foot spy, you know, taking a drink and passing on. That was what was going on here. That's what's going on. That's how crazy this is. These were ceremonial washing jars. Jesus, are you sure? Uh, but he said, no, do whatever he tells you. So they, they did, and they, and they kind of went with it. And, and, and the, all the babies are crying because it's horrible. It's a terrible situation. Verses 9 and 10. And then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you saved the best till now. Say the best till now. So this wasn't Aldi's own wine, okay? This wasn't Buckfast made by the monks from Buckfast Monastery, okay? This wasn't. This was, Johnny, you're a kind of suave guy. Give me a Le Chateau. Come on. The Chateau, come on, give me something to do. Chateau de Louis. Is that right? Did you just make that up? This was that. That's how good this was. And this it, is absolutely amazing. So the, the Master of Ceremonies is saying, this, is the be- this isn't just wine. This is actually the best wine. Now, just make a side note. Drunkenness in Jewish culture was deplorable. Drunkenness in Jewish culture was shameful. They weren't getting drunk here. In fact, it was typical in Jewish culture to have two parts wine for three parts water. That was, the, that was how they drank their wine, okay? So just to be clear, this was not a three-day binge ceremony where everyone got drunk and Jesus was condoning. That's not what was going on here. But nevertheless, it was very good wine. You see, when Jesus fed the five thousands, it's not like you got a, a bit of thin and a crumb. No, no. It says when they ate their fill. That's what it says. When they ate their fill, and they gathered up basketfuls afterwards. This is the God we serve. You see, God is giving us His best, and I have to tell you, God giving us the best does not breed consumerism. Question, what kind of kids does a stingy father raise? Stingy kids. What kind of kids does a generous father raise? Generous kids. This is God. So what's going on here? Okay, there's lots of things going on here. We'll come to the deeper level in a minute, but let me tell you on the surface what's going on here. The groom in a wedding in these Jewish communities in that ancient world, the groom had one job, say one job, 
Just say he had one job. And guys like having just one job to do, okay? We like that, okay? He had one job to do. And his one job to do for a groom in a Jewish culture, the one job for the groom to do was to provide the wine for the ceremony, for the wedding feasts. He failed at his one job, okay? Everything else was dealt with by the master of ceremonies and the bride's family. But the groom had one job to do, and he failed in that one job. And, and here was Jesus. And what was Jesus doing? He was helping him. It's amazing. It's a beautiful story. I mean, how many guys, men, honestly, how many guys have, as your wife said, see when you're coming home, remember to pick up, okay? No, right? Honestly, I'm not the best with that, okay? I, I cannot tell you how many times I've actually driven home and I've got to my driveway and I suddenly remembered, oh, that. And honestly, I've actually turned around and driven a mile back. And she'll say, why were you late home? <laughs> Hands up if you've done that before. Okay, <laughs> seriously. We're so bad at this. The one thing we had to do, we forget it. And this is what was going on here. This guy had one thing to do and he forgot it. And he fails. And I have to tell you, in the Jewish Galilean culture, hospitality was everything. Uh, hospitality had, was held with such high esteem that if you failed to be hospitable, it was a deeply, deeply shameful thing. So this man should have looked shamed, but instead he looked honored. You've given us the best wine. And Jesus didn't say, that was actually me. He let it stand. This man who should have looked shamed looked honored. So why did Jesus do this miracle on a surface level? Because he loved the Galilean peasant. And he hates people being shamed. And he wanted them to feel honored on his special day. And if we just stopped there, we would say, God, you're awesome. Because that's how he is. That's how he is with you. That's how he is with me. God, you're awesome. But the Bible goes further. Listen to verse 11. It says this. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs, say signs, through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, it's interesting. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel has lots of parables. Say parables. Now, a parable is a typically a fictional story that Jesus would tell to make a bigger spiritual point. It was like a parallel. And he would draw a truth alongside another story. And you understood great things about God through parables. In John's gospel, there aren't any really parables. But what you do have in John's gospel are signs. In fact, there are seven signs through the gospel of John. And this, according to the Bible, was the first of them. And what a sign it was. So, What's, what's happening? And a sign is a true account that's making a big point, whereas a parable is a fictional story making a big point. Now, what was the sign pointing to? And here's some clues. So what we're going to do, we're going to be like Inspector Crusoe here. We're going to get our magnifying glass out, our Sherlock Holmes hat on, and we're going to look for some clues in the verses. And if you've been reading the verses with me, you'll have seen certain things have stood out, okay? You've seen them already, but I'll just remind you of them. Clue number one in our investigation— Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. Did you notice that? I mean, wasn't that weird? Mary said, uh, verses 3 and 4, Jesus' mother said to him, there is no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? 
Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, just by the way, Mary's being like a typical mum or wife here, okay? She doesn't actually ask the question she's asked. She doesn't say, could you make more wine? She just says, there's no more wine, <laughs> right? It's like my wife will say, oh, there's lots of shopping in the car. <laughs> she doesn't say, Pete, any chance you could pick up the shopping and take it to the car? Or something like this will happen. The dishwasher's quite full. <laughs> By the way, a, a wee tip, guys, if your wife or mum says that, don't say, woman, my hour has not yet come, okay? <laughs> don't say that. That's not going to go down well, is it? <laughs> High five your wife and say, I won't say that, honey. <laughs> I mean, that's not going to go down well. But Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. Now, actually, he says this six times in the Gospel of John. He says, my hour has not yet come. He said it six times. And on every other occasion, when he says, my hour has not yet come, he is referring to his crucifixion. His crucifixion. Why did God become a man? Because we needed a man to die for us. My hour has not yet come is a direct reference to his crucifixion. Now, what on earth has that got to do with wine in a wedding? And it answers the first question. Remember the first question? If I was God PR guy, and I was going to say, okay, what miracle? Okay, God's become a man, John chapter 1. John chapter 2, what's the first miracle? The reason this was the first miracle was because this is everything to do with why he came. In this story is the entire gospel. He was saying, my hour has not yet come. He was basically saying, it's not yet my time to die. Second clue in the verses is the stone water jars. Let's look at it again, verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus deliberately chose these jars, which were used, they were not designed for drinking, they were designed for purification. Say purification. Jesus deliberately chose these jars that were designed for cleansing and for purification. And the, Jews, the Jewish purification ceremonies, washing the hands and washing the feet to get all the dust off, to get even between courses, washing their hands. And their ultimate concern in every moment in, for a Jew, in their religiousness, their ultimate concern was they wanted not only to be pure on the outside, they wanted to be pure before God. That was why they did that. And what Jesus was doing here was saying is this, I'm not just going to clean you on the outside, I'm going to provide you with purification for your soul. That's what he was saying. Each jar, it says, held between 20 and 30 gallons. That means six jars. It could have been up to 180 gallons of the finest wine. I, I, I did a wee Google on that. That equates to 1,091 bottles, an average bottle, you know, 750 ml. 1,091 bottles of the finest wine. Okay, let's make it into glasses. If you have five glasses per bottle, okay, that's 5,455 glasses of the finest wine. Now, this groom had failed to provide, but this groom has provided amply for the purification 
It says in John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. Read it with me. One, two, three. Here it's here. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Say it again. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. You were bought at a price. You were not bought with a million pounds. One million pounds pales into insignificance compared to the price that was spent to purchase you. All the world and all the riches this world contains pale into insignificance compared to the price that was spent to purchase you. It was the precious blood of Jesus Christ that was spent to cleanse and to purchase and to purify your soul for all eternity. It says in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it says this, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. It was God's blood that was shed in that cross, and it's God's blood that can cleanse any sin. Jeff Bridges said this, sorry, Jerry Bridges, not the actor, Jerry Bridges, the theologian, said this, your worst day was never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace, and your best days are never so good that you're beyond the needs of God's grace. And the point Jesus was making is this, 180 gallons of the finest wine, really? Do we really need that? What he was saying is this, there is an endless supply. Say endless supply. All sin covered, all people, all time. That's how good what Jesus accomplished on the cross was. Second clue. Third clue is this, verse 10. You've saved the best till now. That's what they said. You've saved the best till now. And you see, when you think about wine, think, I mean, you know your Bibles. What, what association? What, what do you think about when you think about wine? Hmm? Champagne. Champagne? That's good, but think Bible, Irene. <laughs> come back, come back now. We're in church. We're in church. Communion. Thank you. But I like champagne too. That's great. Ah, oh, that's great. Thanks for trying. Thanks for trying. At least you tried. No one else tried. You two, you are the right answer. Rubbish answer. But that was the right answer. That was great. Communion. Okay. At the Last Supper, Jesus took the wine. Remember that? And this is a direct link. So when he said, you have saved the best till now, it's a clear reference to the new covenants, the Last Supper, where Jesus made a new covenant with his people. The chapter before in verse 17 says this, John 1, 17, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses brought the old covenant, Jesus Christ brings the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 tells us about the new covenant. The old covenant of which he is a mediator, sorry, the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior, say superior. It's the best wine, superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. Say better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, there would be no place sought for another. So if there'd been nothing wrong with the old covenant, what was wrong with the old covenant? Here's what was wrong with the old covenant. Because, I mean, you think, God gave the old covenant. How could there be anything wrong with the old covenant? Well, here's what was wrong with the old covenant we were wrong with the Old Covenant. Not what God said. It was, in fact, the Old Covenant was perfect. Absolutely perfect. What was wrong with the Old Covenant was us. And that's what it goes on to say, verse 8. But God found fault with the people and said, 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by their hand and led them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. You see, that covenant was based on their faithfulness. You see that? The old covenant. It was based on the faithfulness of the people. And I turned away from them because he had to, because he's God and he's just, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put the laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, and I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And by calling this covenant new, he has made the the first one, obsolete. Say obsolete. So, as far as we are concerned, according to the Bible, the old covenant is now obsolete to us, not because it's not perfect. It is perfect. It is incredibly perfect. It is the perfect law of God. But the reason it's obsolete is this. God's made a new covenant. The old covenant was based on your faithfulness. The new covenant is based on His faithfulness. In the old covenant, you did goods, you got goods. You did bad, you got bad. You read Deuteronomy 28. The blessings for obedience, the cursings for disobedience. But in the new covenant, it's based on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law. See, this covenant isn't, isn't to do with what they do or don't do. This is covenant is to do with what I do. God says. And God dealt with the faithlessness issue of the old covenant. He couldn't bless us in the old covenant because we couldn't be faithful. In the new covenant, He can bless us because Jesus was faithful. And I have to tell you, the old covenant supply had run dry. There was none left. And Jesus, when He came, He abundantly supplied as the new groom of the new covenant, the best covenant, the best wine, and the complete provision, ample provision, more than, you know, no, no party on earth needs 180 gallons of wine. You might think your parties did. No way. Not one party on earth needed 180 gallons of wine. And this provision of God through the new covenant is inexhaustible. Romans 8, 3 to 4 says, for what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, you know, we could not meet the mark we fall short, weakened by the flesh. God did in sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus became a man and be a sin offering so He condemned sin in the flesh. Listen, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Jesus obeyed the old covenant on my behalf He is, um, my standing before God is in Christ. I died in Christ. The law was fulfilled in Christ. He is my righteousness. And David Paulson said this, God does not accept me just as I am. He loves me despite how I am. He loves me just as Jesus is. And you are in Christ, and you are loved in Christ, and that's what Jesus did for you on the cross. The other amazing thing about this, so this is all about the cross. That's why it was his first miracle. It wasn't like a, well, that's a weird one to start with, God. No, no, that was a very deliberate one to start with, God. It was a sign. It was telling you 
It was about the hour of his coming. It was about the new covenant that he was going to establish. And it was about the ample supply for purification of sins. And he does, Jesus does hear what all single people do in a wedding. All single people in a wedding sit in the wedding thinking about, I wonder what my wedding will be like. And Jesus, as a single man in that wedding, was anticipating the ultimate wedding feast. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he goes to a wedding ceremony, and the whole age, the whole culmination of the universe will culminate in the ultimate wedding feast where Jesus, the groom, the great groom, will meet us, the church, his brides, and there will be this incredible wedding feast, all possible because of his great provision. Let's hear it for Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. God, as someone once said, Christianity is the only world religion in which God became a man and died for his enemies to make them his bride. And we are in awe of you, God. Jesus, you're a great Savior, and thank you for that great miracle you performed. If the only reason you performed that miracle was to save a poor Galilean groom from shame, if that's the only reason you did it, we would have been impressed. But thank you, Jesus, you not only did it for him, you did it as a sign letting us know the inexhaustibleness of your provision for the purifications of all sins for all people. And we thank you that you did it to tell us about the new covenant, this new agreement we could be in with you, not based anymore on our faithfulness, but based on your faithfulness. Not based on what I do, but based on what you've done. And we are in awe of your grace. We are in awe of you, the ultimate groom. And we anticipate, as those who have been purchased by precious blood, that one day we'll stand before you face to face and there will be a great party, a great wedding feast, a very exciting awesome feasts in your very presence. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, just in his presence, church, just take a moment to thank him. Thank him for him being the God who is interested in the coincidentals. Thank him for him being the God who covers shame. Thank him for him being the God who's made provision for sin. Just while people are praying, I want to give you an opportunity today. Maybe today you're here and maybe you've never, you're here in this church, but you've never personally accepted Jesus as your Savior. You've never personally committed yourself to Him. I want to give you an opportunity today to make that decision, the greatest decision, the best decision of your life to become a follower of Jesus. And if that's you today, I would like to pray for you. And here's what we're going to do. If that's you and you're saying, Peter, today I want to become a follower of Jesus. I want to put my trust in this Jesus who is willing to die for me and rise again. Then I invite you to pray this prayer with me. Just one line at a time under your breath. Just pray this quietly to God. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you for your great love for me. Jesus, thank you. You are willing to die for me in the cross. 
and shed your blood so my sin could be forgiven. And yet you rose again on the third day and you're alive right now. Today I put my faith in you. Today I give my life to you. I turn from sin and I turn my life over to God. Jesus, be Lord of my life from this day forward.